What a joy it is to welcome you to the live stream today from Hamilton Square Baptist Church, really from my living room. But it's a joy to welcome you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for all of you who have been so faithful during the eight months now of absence from our regular meetings at our church facility. However, we are still a church. And the building does not make us a church. We are the body of Christ. We've met together to honor a great, sovereign, reigning, ruling God. At his right hand is our Lord Jesus Christ, reigning supreme, our wonderful Savior and Lord. Maybe he'll come back today. Who knows? So this may be a great day. It should be a day, however, of blessing. It's the Lord's day. The day that God has set aside for our rest, our refreshing, our help, our blessing, our instruction. Our nation remains as it has through the last months of this virus in tremendous need of repentance and seeking God. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then God says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. That's the promise of a great sovereign God. As we seek him today, we will find him, and we will be blessed together as God's people Again, thank you for joining us today. We need to turn our hearts toward heaven because it's the blessing of God that makes rich. Thank you for your faithfulness. This, is, this has been an experience uh, that has been, in a sense, gladdening, encouraging. It's been, to my heart as a pastor, such a joy to see the faithfulness and the persistence of God's people through all that's been going on. Well, we have an important scripture passage this morning. What will it be, Pastor Pelletier? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, I like that phrase, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. The more you know God personally, the quieter, the more restful, the more confident that life will be. 
things that God cannot do. We've been bringing a long series of messages on the greatness of God. I want to continue on today on some very important truths that are derived from this, from this greatness of our God, from His holiness. And I want to read again the text. As I was reading it this morning, I said, you know, we've read this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And if we could begin every day with this perspective, our lives would be different. You know, it's how it's the perspective you have on life that determines the decisions you make, the responses you make, the emotional uh, dynamic that goes on in your life as you as you go through the various experiences of the day. So if you will read with me, and I hope that you have the notes because we have some important material to share with you today and some important scriptures. We'll begin in 1 Chronicles 16 with verse number 8. David's psalm of thanksgiving as they're carrying the ark into the city of Jerusalem. Give thanks. I wish I could just preach a sermon, just preach through this text today. It's a marvelous text. Give thanks unto Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed, offspring of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, he is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, ye kindreds of the people, ascribe unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty that is in the shining splendor of holiness. What a God we have. And he is the context in which all of life takes place. He is the context in which all of the issues of life, are you listening to me, are finally resolved. Yes or no? Help me with this. So as his people, we need to know what kind of a God he is. And at the end of the notes about His holiness, there are things He can't do. God can't fail. God can't lie. God is totally trustworthy. The outcome of everything is in His hands. We talked about His character, His holiness, nothing is missing. God is unanimous in purpose and in works, in thoughts, and in everything he does, nothing is undivided. 
He is immutable, nothing changes, he's absolutely consistent, he's coordinated, totally coordinated, nothing, nothing in the character of God ever works at cross purposes with another characteristic of God, God's justice and God's love never, never, never work in opposition, always they work together as, as, as the character of God should, his absolute goodness and purity, there is no mixture with evil. There is nothing ever that comes out of the heart and mind of God that isn't absolutely perfect and good and right and just. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God is totally good and without evil. Now, you've heard me say this before and I think your mind's going to sleep. Stay awake, please. Because we're going to move along, and I have an important question for you in just a moment. Now, we have said the wonderful thing about God is that in everything God does, God's love always works together. It's, it's perfectly united with, integrated with his justice. So God's love never does anything that's not just. And God's justice never does anything that's not loving. God's grace and mercy never does anything that is not truthful. And God's truth is always consistent with what is gracious and merciful. So all of the attributes of God are perfectly integrated. So when God is at work in your life, you say, well, does God love me? Oh, yes, God loves you, but his love is just. Is God just? Oh, yes, he is, but his justice is loving, and sometimes that bothers us. <clears throat> sometimes that bothers us. So all of God's attributes are perfectly integrated together. They never work separately or apart from each other. They always work as a whole. Our God is one. Our God is one God. His name is I Am. He's everything at the same time. This is so very important. As God is working in your life, there are things you really like about his works in your life. There are times he comforts you and you say, oh, thank you, dear Lord, for that. There are times you, you experience the mercy and the goodness, the grace of God. You, oh, that's wonderful, say. But there are times when God allows things in your life that don't make sense to you. And remember that God's love and God's justice never, never works apart from his wisdom and his knowledge. Can we trust the wisdom and knowledge of God? Okay, can we do that? Very, very, very important questions concerning God, concerning his holiness. Now, if I were to ask you, and we have some folks with us here in, in the service today, if I were to ask you about Romans 8.28, God works all things together for what? Good. For good. Now, I just got the answer for good. To those who love God and are called according to divine purpose, to his purpose, okay? So now... What about those things that we don't understand? What about those things that, that, that seem to hurt us? You see, all of God's attributes are at work for good. 
to those who love God are called according to his divine purpose. Now, the more you know about God, the more you can rest assured in this. My dear mother, uh, who is home in glory now, her favorite verse was, as for God, his way is perfect. Not only did she believe that, I remember the day that I wrecked my car and I called her up. The first thing she did after we talked on the phone was she went into her bedroom, got on her knees, and thanked God that I wrecked my car. Because she believed that there was divine purpose in that. She believed God knew what he was doing. She believed it was good. As for God, his ways are perfect. Okay? It's not just a theological concept. It goes beyond that. It's a practical application in everything in life. Some of us are going through financial difficulties. Others are going through physical difficulties. Others are going through difficulties of other kinds. The fact of the matter is everyone is going through difficulties of one kind or another. That's the fact of life with believers. Okay? So it's the character of God, it's his holiness that ensures a right outcome for everything. And may I suggest, <clears throat> can I be bold today? Will you allow me to do this? May I suggest to you that if what God is doing is good whether we understand it or not, Maybe we should just get on board what he's doing instead of wondering why it's happening. Amen. So, as we face practical issues in life, and we all do, we have to take what is a doctrinal matter and it must become a practical matter that's tied into a confidence in God that changes our relationship to our problems. Doesn't change the problems. It changes our relationships to our problems. It changes our outlook. It changes our perspective on our problems and our difficulties. Now, God's holiness has to do with his divine perfections. And we say on page four, middle of that page in the yellow highland, God's holiness becomes the benchmark by which we measure everything else. Again, this is so important. I don't mind repeating this. I've been here two or three times. I'd, I'll go here a dozen times if I need to. This is something that is so contrary to the thinking of progressives in our day. It is so far removed from the thinking of most Christians. Remember, God is the measure of man. Man is not the measure of God. Never forget that. God is not good because I think he is. He's good whether or not I think he is. God is not just because I think he is. He is whether or not I think he is. And if I think he is not, I am wrong. God is the measure of man. Man is not the measure of God. We've got things upside down in our, in our society and in our culture. Now, the glory of God is the outshining of his divine perfections. It's the expression of his holiness. And various violations of his glory are described as sin in the Bible. Now, I'm going to take a different direction on this today, if time permits. But we want to review a little bit about what sin is. Now, sin, you see, takes a... I haven't lost my thought. <laughs> sin takes a cosmos 
which means an orderly arrangement. And it turns it into a chaos. It takes order and turns it into disorder. It takes divine purpose and it totally misses it altogether. It makes a wreckage of what had divine purpose. Sin is not the friend of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word sinned means to miss the mark. The problem is that most of our culture knows no divine purpose at all. In fact, most people in our country don't even know there is divine purpose for their life. Most Christians haven't figured that out. There is divine purpose for every day of your life as a believer. To sin is to miss the mark. It's not just to do a bad thing, to tell a white lie or a, a black lie or, or, or to get angry, lose your temper. Sin is to miss God's purpose for your life. It's a horrible thing to do that. It's to miss the mark. And <laughs> because we're part sinners, we, we've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. And we, we come short, we don't measure up to, to the out. The outraying, the outshining of God's glory. We have, we just don't, don't fit God at all. It's amazing. We're born dead to God and alive to sin. A terrible state in which to find ourselves. And through Jesus Christ, we become dead to sin and alive to God. And that's how we ought to live a life to divine purpose, to miss the mark. Again, I want to ask you as a believer: Are you conscious that every day in your life? If your if your work is if your work is legitimate, it is your divine appointment. Mm -hmm. You're to do it for the glory of God, and if you don't, you miss the mark. Every day has divine purpose for God's people. Everything has divine purpose. So, then we have the word ungodly, another word that describes sin in in the word of God, which really means not to reverence or not to worship. It's amazing to me the total lack of respect for God among the pagans in our culture. But really what amazes me more is the lack of respect for God among God's people. Yeah. And the respect for God's name, the respect for God's day, the respect for God's word, the respect for God's ways. So the word ungodly means not to reverence or not to worship, not to respect God. And that's another word that's used. Then there's the word disobedience. We spent a lot of time here, especially in the last message, which means refu refusing to hear. To say, I'm not going to listen. God says it. I don't care. I've got my own ideas. I'm going my own way. I will not listen. Would it not be an unthinkable, horrible tragedy if God refused to speak to man, if God just said, I'm all right, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. This has ended a lot of marriages. The husband has decided, I'm not going to talk to her anymore. And that ends the relationship. The wife decides, I'm not going to talk to him anymore. That ends the relationship. The children, they can, they can do the same thing. I'm not going to talk anymore. Communication. And God is a communicating God. In the beginning was the Word. God is a communicating God. 
So God speaks through prophets and through revelations. Hebrews chapter 1. God is the speaking, revealing God. And as he speaks, if we've got any sense, we ought to say, thank God, at least he's talking to me. Wow. At least he's talking to me. And I need to listen. Disobedience is failure to listen to God. It's refusing to hear and ultimately, it results in disobedience. Usually in the New Testament, this word is, is translated disobedience because when you don't listen, you disobey. You just do your own thing instead of God's thing. And that's why it's translated usually disobedience. Then we have the word iniquity. It's a state or condition of being disposed to do what is lawless. It's the word lawlessness. King James usually uh, calls it wickedness or sin. New American Standard generally will translate it as the word lawlessness, which is really the literal translation of the Greek word anomia, which means no law or not to have a law or the condition of one without law, ignorant of it, contemptuous of it, violating of it. So, so the word iniquity, which means no law, not to be governed by the law, not to be... Uh, aware of the law or to be contemptuous toward the law of God, not to be governed by that law. And Jesus, in Matthew 7, if you see your notes there on page number 6 of Matthew 7, 23, is talking to highly religious people who profess to have cast out demons and healed people in the name of Jesus, but who do not recognize the divine authority of his word. This is something dangerous. And a lot of our charismatic friends border on this area. You've got to be very careful what you do with God's Word. Very careful what you do with God's Word. Not to be governed by the law. I will declare to these religious leaders who are making great professions of religious and spiritual works, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. King James says wickedness, but it's the Greek word anomia, no law, lawlessness. So you have the word iniquity, which means lawlessness. And then you have you have the expression in Romans 2.23, breaking the law. Uh, it means really overstepping the bounds, passing over the line, if you please. Breaking the law. Transgression would be a good word, but we're going to see the word trespass shortly. But it means passing over the line. Passing over the line. Now, <laughs> this is a time for honesty. <clears throat> Confession and honesty. When somebody has an agreement with you and they just move around the edge of that agreement, you don't like it. Yes or no? But, however, sometimes we enjoy doing it to other people. Right? If we can get away with it, right? Right? Now, you say, how do you know, Pastor? I know because <clears throat> I know because I know. <laughs> I know because I know. I live at the same address you live at. Okay? But that's, that's another word for sin in the Bible. Then you have the word a trespass. You have the word trespass, a deviation from living according to what has been revealed. 
to fall beside or near something. Um, uh, it means to fall alongside of, and uh, it means that you don't you don't hit it right. You you most of us not well. I don't know how many of you live in houses with fences around. Most of the houses in my neighborhood here have fences around them. And those fences are property lines. And, and they are there so that you know you are free to do what you want within your, so on your side of the fence. But when you get on the other side of the fence, that property belongs to somebody else. Okay. So now the concept here is that really your life belongs to God. And what happens on his side of the fence and everything belongs on his side of the fence is his business. And when we take what's his business and we go on the other side of the fence so we can get away with ignoring what really belongs to him, that's called a trespass. That's called a trespass. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. So you have trespass. You have other words. You have other words in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, that express sin. Sin, which is really they're violations of the character of God. They're violations of God's created order, of God's purposes, of God's plans, of God's ways, of God's word. And all of us have been there without exception. And in Romans, you find the first couple of chapters dealing with the, with the, with the pagans, and then, you, then he comes to the religious people, and Paul says the, there's no difference between the pagans and the religious. They've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody has met God's standard. Nobody has lived righteously. Everybody has sinned. There's none righteous. No, not one. So you have pagan ungodly sinners, and you've got religious sinners. But everybody's a sinner, because when you take these words that describe sin... They describe everybody that goes to church every Sunday and those that never, never darken the door of a church or have never heard the name God, if you please. doesn't matter where you are, who you are, and under what condition. Everybody lives with a heart that's prone to do this stuff, and it's wicked before God. It denies God his rightful place. It denies God his purpose in your life. Wickedness. We can justify these things. It doesn't matter all of the excuses we give. I think I told you that the word rationalize means to give a good reason for doing a bad thing. And that's what we do all the time. These things are all wicked. Now, having talked about sin, very quickly I want to change directions. God has a provision for our sins. The first, and I want to give two words very quickly, and then I want to move quickly on from here if I can. There are two words. The first word is the word forgiveness. And if you will take your concordance and go through the New Testament, you will find the word forgiveness in relationship to getting saved. The word forgiveness is rarely used. Now, it is used, but rarely used. The word that's used more often than any is justified, justification or being justified. I was surprised at this because most people say, do you want God to forgive your sins? Well, we need more than forgiveness. We need justification. Without justification, we're going nowhere, okay? It's not only negatively taking away all of our sins, but it's positively giving us a righteousness that's adequate to meet God's requirements. There are, there are two problems you have in getting to heaven. 
Forgiveness is only one part of that equation, see. The word forgiveness is the Greek word aphesis. Aphesis, which means to dismiss or to send away or to disconnect from. To disconnect from. So, in Acts 10.43, a marvelous, wonderful verse. To him, the Lord Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him, literally into him, shall receive what? Remission or forgiveness of sins. All right. To the Lord Jesus, give all the prophets witness through his name, literally everyone, everyone who is believing into him will receive the forgiveness of sins, the dismissing of his sins, the dis disconnecting of himself from his sins. You say, is it possible that God can take this whole mass of my lifetime of sins? Now let me go back on that one. A whole lifetime of sins. Not only the ones you know about, and I know about, but the ones that God knows that we never figured out. Is it possible for God to take this whole mass of a lifetime of sins from the moment of conception to the moment of death? Is it possible for God to take that mass of sins, completely remove it out of the way, and disconnect us from it? And the answer is absolutely yes. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his shed blood, and his atoning blood, all of our sins can be removed as far as the east is from the west. They can be disconnected and removed to where no longer will we ever, ever at any, hear me, at any judgment, will we ever meet them again. Everyone who believes into him you take your faith, you take your trust, you take all of your reliance out of everything else. That means religious exercises, your prayers, your good deeds, your goodness. You take it out of everything else and you place all of your hope and your reliance and your trust and you place it into Jesus Christ personally. Receiving him as your Savior and Lord. To him give all the prophets witness that everyone who is believing into him will receive the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins. That is the promise. Now that's God's word. That's God's promise. You might not, it may be too good to be true. But God said it. And if God said it, it establishes the fact. God has declared that your sins may, need, may, may be totally remitted from you, totally forgiven, removed and disconnected from you forever. That is amazing. And the word justification gives you the basis upon which this is done. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redeeming or repurchase that is in Christ Jesus that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Now, he says we are justified as a gift by his grace. Romans 5, 1 says we are justified by faith. The word justified is an amazing word. Now, a lot of people think that when God forgives sins, he, he lifts up the corner of the carpet and he sweeps all of our sins under the carpet like we never did them. Okay? 
That's what most people think. That's why they think, they think God can do... God cannot take one of your sins and sweep them under the carpet. God cannot allow one of your sins to escape judgment. Not one. Not one. If God failed to bring one sin into judgment in all of the history of the world, God would cease at that point to be God. The moral order of right and wrong would collapse entirely. Satan would win and God would lose. Every sin has to be accounted for. Every sin. So the word justified means that you and I go to court and God takes a record of every sin we've ever committed in our lifetime and he requires that, that we've got to give an account for that sin. Now here's the wonderful thing. Jesus Christ is standing at that judgment and he, the Father goes through our sins one or time. Jesus said, I paid for it on the cross. Sin number two, I paid for it on the cross. Sin number 10,000, I paid for it on the cross. Sin number 100,000, I paid for that one on the cross too. I paid for all of them. It's all paid for, Father. There's no debt left to be paid because I paid for all. We have a hymn in our hymn book, a precious, wonderful hymn. Jesus paid it all. Mm -hmm. All to him I owe. Wow. So when God gets done at that judgment process, he says, all right, every sin, there's no sin left. There's nothing on your record. It's all been paid in full. You are now totally acquitted. didn't say not guilty. He said you're acquitted. You're acquitted of all your sin. That's what the word justified means. And there isn't any sin that's too big. There isn't any sin that's been omitted. There isn't any sin or too bad. It means to be acquitted. So when we talk about all of this sin, and we've done so much of it, and we're so prone to it, and we cry out within us, God, do I need, please, God, clean my heart up, clean me up so I can want the right thing and do the right thing and live the right way. And we cry out to God. But we are forgiven. And beyond that, we are justified because the debt has been fully paid. Now, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. I have watched, and you all see this, this, uh, uh, this pillow man on, on TV advertising pillows and blankets and, and uh, what else is he advertising now? And, and you will notice that he has a cross around his neck, which the advertiser said he couldn't wear, but he wears it anyway. He was a crack addict. He is, his life was ruined. And he was marvelously saved by the grace of God. He has a horrible past. His life was destructive in the extreme. And you look at him and you say, can he really be forgiven? There are people who have murdered, people who have committed the grossest of sexual sins, and I mean beyond what most of us think of as immoral. We, we, have the, we have the ugliness and the wickedness of sin and the awfulness of sin and we say, is that all included in the death of Jesus Christ? And it is. Amen. Now, 
there is a twofold problem that I want to talk about for just a few minutes here. You see, number one, we have a problem because we know how much God has had to forgive in our lives personally. And boy, is that a big issue. How many times have I confessed my sins? I'm tired of it. When I get to heaven, I won't have to do it anymore. And you won't either. How much has God forgiven me? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, there's a problem of guilt in believer's life because of the amount of sin. But there's also a problem because when God forgives very wicked people, others don't find it possible to forgive them and accept them as God does. This is a huge problem. It's a problem in the church. We want nice people in our church. God wants sinners in the church, Amen. saved by His grace. Amen. So, good people stumble badly over God's amazing provision of forgiveness and justification. A good life and good works can be an enormous stumbling block to people because they produce in our hearts and minds both pride and arrogance. In Matthew 9, it came to pass, Jesus sat at meat, and let me read the New American Standard, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, that's Levi's house, Matthew was, Matthew was just called to be a disciple. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were hated, they were foreigners that were inflicting oppression on the people of God. The sinners were the prostitutes, they were the lowest of society. Many, notice the word many, many, Matthew is having a dinner for Jesus, he's been called to be a disciple, and he's entertaining Jesus in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I think that's a very self-evident proposition. Well, people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? The Son of Man has come to what? To seek and to save that which was what? Lost. 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 They who are whole do not need a physician. They who are sick. Go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, our problem is that when we are Christians for a period of time, we begin to assume, knowing that we are righteous in Christ, we begin to assume a difference of standing compared to those who know nothing of Christ. I did not come to call the righteous. 
I came to call sinners to repentance. So, the forgiveness of God, publicans, tax collectors, prostitutes, the offscouring of the world are all welcome at God's table through repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I came to call sinners. Didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. You don't understand my mission. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if we have difficulty in classing ourselves together with those who have tremendous need of forgiveness, we have lost our perspective as believers. Are you hearing me? We've lost our perspective as believers. Luke 15 is an interesting chapter, and in it there are three parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Those three parables are covered in Luke chapter 15. And the context is in verse number 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. I hope that we have a lot of sinners that are listening to this live stream today. Amen. I hope you are welcome here. The house of God is open to sinners. That's what this whole business is about. It's not about condemning people for being sinners. It's about bringing the message of repentance and redemption, repurchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we are about. Now notice in verse number 2, this is why he gave the parables. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Wow. I am so glad. We, we live, we, our ministry is ministry to San Francisco. San Francisco is not known for its godly Christian living. It's known for the exact opposite. And if Jesus were to come to town, he would be calling sinners to repentance. Now, Amen. he doesn't save you in your sin. Get that. He saves you from your sin. Mm -hmm. And you have to come to agreement on terms as to the fact that you're a sinner. That, that you've got to establish between you and God. He doesn't save you in your sin, but from your sin. So repentance, you have to come to, to agreement with God about your sins, that they're wrong. You get through, you see, we come to God on God's terms. All of us do that. None of us comes to God on religious terms, self-righteous terms. None of us comes to God that way. So, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I think, and I don't have time today to read through this. I'm looking at the clock and my time is up. But I'm going to take time to summarize this thing. Most of these people, most people think that this is the parable of the parable of the prodigal son. And it really isn't. Now the prodigal son is featured up front in this. But this is the parable of the angry brother that would not grant forgiveness to his brother because of his religious standing and because of his own personal good works. 
His brother was a self-righteous man who had lived right all of his life. Jesus was not condemning the man for living right all his life. He had served faithfully in his father's house. He had fulfilled his responsibilities as a good son. He had not lived in sin and wickedness outwardly in his life. He had lived an exemplary good life. But his brother had not. And if you know the parable, you know that his brother really made a mess of things. A horrible mess of things. In fact, of all the parables, this prodigal, this brother of his, really went about as low as anybody ever got. He was a disgrace to the family. He was a disgrace to his father. He was a disgrace to God. But the one thing happened in the life of the prodigal that didn't happen in the life of the good son is the prodigal. The prodigal came to his own senses and realized before God in heaven he wasn't fit to live and he wasn't fit to be his father's son. His brother never, never, never in all of his good works, hear me, all of his righteousness never came to repentance. This is amazing. I'm talking to someone today that's very religious and very good. And people who are very wicked and blow it all are going to get into the kingdom of heaven, and you will not because you've not been born again. The other thing the brother would not do is he would not forgive his prodigal brother. He refused. He was, he was angry. He was livid at what his... He did not like the fact that his brother had been unconditionally forgiven and unconditionally received back into the Father's house. Now, it wasn't all the same because the Father explained, he's lost his inheritance and you got yours. He can't get back what he lost. He spent his inheritance. He doesn't get that back, but he is my son. He gets back in with full privileges of sonship in this house. He is fully received in this house, and that infuriated his brother. That's the point of this parable. And we as believers, sometimes we, 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 we look at the grace of God in other people and we say, that can't be. And, and it, sometimes God's total forgiveness in the lives of other people upsets us. He gets away with all of that. And I get away with nothing. No, no, that's not how it works. Number one. If you've been very wicked in your background, you need to understand that you are fully received into fellowship with God Amen. when you receive Jesus Christ. God's love to you is unconditional. Amen. Now, you can't go back and pick up the life that you lost. You, you don't get that back. But from this day forward, you can live for the glory of God. Amen. See? That's how that works. And if you get saved when you're a child and you faithfully serve God through those years, you don't lose all of those years that other people lose. Hear me, if I'm talking to young people and children, you have a tremendous advantage if your parents, if your parents are helping you not to waste and throw your life away in your younger years. Because you'll retain the benefit of all of this through the rest of your life. Okay? But all sin, all sin, was carried to judgment 
at the cross of Jesus Christ, where his blood was shed as an atonement, his life was poured out in death for our sins, and he rose again the third day, and he received sinners into the kingdom of God. Now you need to trust him today, dear friend. I beg of you, do it. I beg of you, do it. And we need, we need, we need to understand that God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness is complete and total, and we're forgiven. All of our sins are disconnected from us. Past, present, and future, through the death of Jesus Christ, his judgment on the cross for our sins, his shed blood. And then we are justified. God reviews our case because there's not one sin left that can condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's a wonderful thing. I hope that you're not among those who look and say, I'm good, I've lived right like, 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 the, like the, the good son who honored his father and did everything right except he never, never, never realized that in his own heart he was as, as much in need of forgiveness as his prodigal brother was. Didn't know it. Didn't know it. Because he measured his own righteousness in different ways than God would ever do it. We need to be careful. May this be the day when you call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name everyone believing in him will receive remission of sins. Heavenly Father, may men and women, boys and girls, call on the name of the Lord. And may we who have been saved by the grace of God, may we rejoice when other sinners, when other sinners find the same redemption and forgiveness that we have found. May they find in our hearts the same welcome and acceptance that they find in your heart. And God, I pray, give us a heart to see people saved in our area and around the world. Give us a heart to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone believing into him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We praise you, O God, for this great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.